Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to the Inspired Evolution, a show dedicated to helping you actually live the life that you love. I'm your host, Amrit Sandhu, international speaker, global coach, and loving podcaster. As a gift for tuning into this podcast, I have something really special just for you. My premium short course, which can teach you how to meditate in just seven days. You can download it now at www.inspiredevolution.com forward slash learn. That's www.inspiredevolution.com forward slash learn. Learn how to meditate in just seven days. Sit back, relax, and enjoy this powerfully insightful conversation. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any of the latest episodes launching every Monday designed to help you live the life you love and keep you inspired to evolve. Welcome to the Inspired Evolution and it is ladies, gentlemen, plants, creatures of all kinds. It is such a treat to be here today. We have with us Duff and Duff and brother, how are you? Ah, so good to be here, Amrit. Thank you so much for the invitation to join you. Are you serious? It is an absolute <laughs> blessing to have you here. For those tuning into DARPAN for the first time, I was about to say DARPS for the first time because there is just that affection in my heart, which I can't tell. Nah, off. totally good, bro. <laughs> But for those that are tuning into Darpan for the first time, he weaves 30 plus years of experience in music and healing to create a unique transmission that inspires, empowers, and transforms. His home, luckily for us, is in Australia. Here, he's renowned as a pioneering spiritual teacher, musician, and healer. He consistently is bringing people together everywhere he goes to create an unambiguous experience of our source. This is the intention he so gracefully and potently inspires a blend of song, ceremony, meditation, and celebration 
are the means by which he achieves these incredible goals. Many of his satsang sharings have been the bedrock upon which I have developed many of my own empowered and loving perspectives on life. If there was one teacher alive after my own father to whom I would accredit most of my personal development to, truthfully, I would be hard pressed not to acknowledge it as this man. Darpan, brother, mentor, guide. Bro, I love you. Welcome. Such a treat to have you here. (laughs) I don't want to dilly-dally about. I want to dive straight into it. Can we have a bit of a conversation around what it means to be in this time? It feels like when I tune into this conversation with you, it's like a time of awakening. um, And I just want to go there with you and just sort of see what does it mean to be alive in an awakening time? Wow, yeah. This is the time that we've all been, I feel, uh, while we've all incarnated here. This is a time that's unprecedented in our historical process, and it's a time of great portent for the human uh, family in terms of consciousness. You know, many seers and and uh, psychics and visionaries have, have talked over the past millennia about this time or about a time when there would be a great transformation in human consciousness, that there would be a rebirthing, if you like, uh, in the human uh, sphere. And, uh, you know, people that have often talked about whether you look at it as a time of, you know, uh, cataclysm or apocalypse, as the Bible might look at it, or if you look at it as a new dawning, as many of the other uh, indigenous cultures like the Mayan and other cultures have, have talked about, is really a question of perspective, because it really involves both of those aspects. And I believe that at the moment, you know, all of those prophecies and talks and and stories from times gone by, we are actually living in them now. This is it right now. This is what we're going through. And uh, it is a combination of both. And I I like to look at it, you know, in terms of a rite of passage. And in any rite of passage worth its salt, uh, it always involves um, a kind of a an encounter with death or very real possibility of annihilation. And uh, and that this is a good thing because we die to a certain aspect or a certain identity that we'd kind of like uh, adopted up until now and are reborn into a higher perspective or a higher potential of who we truly are. And, uh, and in the old rites of passage in the ancient mystery schools, you know, they would, they would go through, the initiate would go through a period of, of purification of purging, of letting go of all that is that is uh, toxic within the body in order to prepare oneself for the rite of passage. And in a certain sense, that's what we've been in. We've been in a kind of a lockdown. One could even compare it to the stage of from a caterpillar to a butterfly going into the chrysalis, literally going back into the home, staying in your homes, gestating. There's a gestation process going on. Mm-hmm. And, of course, what, uh, you know, at the point where the initiate is ready to, to go uh through the right, they're usually given stripped naked, given a firebrand like a torch, um, given a sacrament and told to go down into a lab and say, find your way through, yeah. knowing, the initiate knowing that he's going to f- face his, his or her worst fears, doubts, uh, you know, the dark shadow, you encounter the dark shadow in the depths of the labyrinth, of the womb of the mother. And in a certain sense i feel that that's what we're going through today you know like with this whole global lockdown you know there are many positive things about it and there's many many negative things about it if you wanted to judge it but uh, i think that overall it's a very necessary perhaps a dark 
chapter in our unfolding, but it's a very necessary one because it's it's the time when we go in for the purge where we face our fears, we face our doubts. And, and really, if you look at it from a you know mass media point of view, it, what's being peddled at the moment, I think it's pretty unequivocally, we could all agree, is fear. And that's what's being peddled on the television. And that's what's causing people to go into this state of almost cognitive dissonance where there's so much information, disinformation and and misinformation flying about that it's difficult for one to say what is true and what is not true and what is real and what is not real. It's it's what we call in the in in the sort of uh in the world of mystery schools, a chapel perilous. It's where you enter into chapel perilous and everything is uncertain. Nothing can be relied upon. It's almost like everything that you thought was solid becomes quicksand. Mm. And although this is very disconcerting from a point of view of the personality and the ego, which likes things to be ordered and known and, and, and you know, trustworthy, um, it's actually a very, very good thing because... Mm. The transformation of consciousness doesn't happen when things are all ordered and, and the world is known and where our concepts and beliefs are clear and, and you know, we know who God is and all the rest of it you know, that comes with that package uh, is, is very little transformation happens in that space. One might even say that's called the sleep state, where mm. we're in a conditioned state, like society's conditioning. That's all being undone right now. That's all in a state of dissolution. And it's an it's a process that was triggered by you know this this lockdown, but it may as well have been triggered by anything else as well because it was just bound to happen. I feel, and that this is the very first step towards this incredible transformation of consciousness that we're all participating with today, that we are all uh, you know subject to, and that we're all yeah basically uh, working with. Then going through that process, even if you're living somewhere off in the desert, you know, away from all of this, it will still affect you because the collective consciousness of the human family is being profoundly affected by these events. And once we go through the sort of purge state, the state of facing fears, of facing the shadow, of, of seeing all of the uh, incredible unconsciousness that we've um, that we've transmitted to the planet today, like the technology that has caused this planet to become polluted, where people are unequal uh, and some people have a, all the resources and other, most of the, po the rest of the population have none, and, you know, and varying degrees in between, uh, the old pyramid school of consciousness is past its use-by date. Mm. It's not to condemn that as being wrong or that the people who are perpetrating this thing are bad. It's just all part of a process. And, uh, you know, to, to uh, take the analogy of a birth, peristalsis has just begun. Mm. The birthing pangs have just started. And there's still quite a way to go through the vaginal canal before the birth is complete. And uh, I believe that we're in that process and it may take a year or years before we emerge at the other end. Uh, and But this stage, it's very, very important to hold firm, to stay connected to like-minded beings, to people who have the same frequency, who you can resonate with, people who are willing to stay in their heart, to embrace the possibility and the reality, the emerging reality of a unified field of consciousness, and that we find ways to resolve the uh, duality uh, the, the, the dual uh, consciousness into a unified field, into a oneness. And that means realizing that we're all part of the one same thing. 
everything on this planet, the trees, the birds, the, the fishes, the, the, the snakes, the, the, the mammals, the humans, the primates, are all part of the one same thing. And that there, that, that there is this one planet called Gaia, which is an entity in it unto itself, is going through a massive shift, just mm. as we do when we go through puberty. You know, we die to one form of ourselves as we were children, subject to our parents, to suddenly, you know, going within and re-emerging as, as an independent adult. Mm -hmm. And the whole planet is going through that. Just as when we were in puberty and, and you know, we had pimples and changing emotions and, you know, changing relationships with people, a bit of strife and, and you know, a bit of, you know, just things being shaken up, basically. Mm -hmm. um, well, so is the planet. I mean, you know, the whole face of the planet what is climate change if not an emotional change in the emotional weather of the planet and what is volcanic activity so much volcanic activity happening around the planet now if not the changing of hormonal systems within the planet or the electromagnetic fields let's say mm -hmm. uh, and they're like the pimples we get when we were when we were like you know at puberty i mean it's a rough analogy but it's nonetheless valid because mm -hmm. it's literally moving from one state of being to a new state of being an old paradigm is dropping away or an old identity is dropping away and we're emerging or being birthed into a larger perspective or a newer uh, identification which is more in tune with where we are at this point in our evolutionary unfolding thank you so much for sharing that Dubs. and one of the things that gets challenged in me as i am um hearing you share is this this concept around oneness and i love when you're sharing it because the thing that settles in for me is uh-huh and there's the bit of me that's afraid of the oneness this dissolution of self and that obviously being my ego is the one that is triggered by that and that bleeds directly into um, one of the questions I was most excited to ask you about today is what is the role of oneself? Um, and I know everybody is unique in the, in the facet of the role that we all play, but as a general rule, like what is the role of self-realization within collective awakening? Ah, it's intimately connected. Absolutely. Thank you for asking that question. Because often when we talk about the collective, it's like, oh, let's all get together and cooperate and do something political or do some sort of organization, when actually it's quite the opposite of that. Mm -hmm. Collective awakening can only happen if a direct result from individual awakening. It's mm -hmm. a matter of individuals waking up to a higher perspective. And by a higher perspective, I mean beyond the this and that up and down in and out kind of paradigm within which we've been operating up until now for which only the first four chakras are really needed that's you know survival emotional procreation of you know the need for love power to, to exist and to share with others and to co-create and of course the heart which is you know the, the, the nurturing for the family and the community and all of that but what is being happening now is that there's a, a rising of that energy if you want to call it kundalini energy in the individual in most individuals and it's coming up and it's going up into more like realms of the creativity and the insight are being opened up and when it comes to the crown this is the place where we call uh, you enter into the unified field of consciousness where duality is resolved or um, formed into unified field and the unified field doesn't mean that you experience yourself as an amorphous bob uh, connected to everything it literally means holding the the stasis between individual self-actualization and connected connectivity to all other sentient beings because this is a direct 
experience of opening up these higher chakras, uh, these higher energy centers. And when we open up that one, sometimes it can be triggered by meditation, sometimes it can be triggered by sacred plants, sometimes it can be triggered by an accident, sometimes it can be triggered by something very dangerous, doing, you know, that's why people are addicted to danger sports because flow states, yeah. you in the here and now, you know, and that's the attraction is that it enters you into that space of the eternal now. Time dissolves into the eternal now. What do I mean by that? I don't mean that time disappears. You just realize that time is a human construct. We thought time was a really finite, real thing. We've been acting as if it is because we're born and we die and time appears to pass in between. But when you actually can experience yourself and realize on a very deep level that all there has ever been and all there ever will be is simply now. Simply now. Any projection into the future or any looking back into the past is simply an activity of the mind. And because we've been so heavily identified with the mind as being that's where our center of intelligence is, we've been believing in time. And time is collapsing, just as so many other systems in this uh, dualistic world, uh, 3D space-time reality, is in the state of dissolution. But um, it's a very good thing because... uh, Time, in, as I see it, when, we, uh, when the new paradigm has, has fully emerged and fully birthed, will be simply a function by which we go, oh, yeah, see you tomorrow at 3 o'clock. But we'll know that that 3 o'clock will be another now. And that now has always been here, even before we were born. And after we die, there will yet be another now. At the point of death is just another now. Death is not anti-life. Death is part of life, just as the, sun, the day is part of the night. You can't really talk about the day without defining it by night and so it is with death death is just uh, another uh, experience of 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 this now that is eternal and that it's a different modality or a different uh filtering of that experience of now so now is always now and when you realize that you realize you were never born and you will never die yes the physical body will die but that which emanates or that which is immanent within the body which animates the body can never die. It is never born and it has never died. And that's one of the great secrets, I think, in a, in a personal self-awakening where one realizes that death is a fiction. There is no such thing. Yes, we can call the physical death of the body a transition for consciousness, certainly, but it's not the end of consciousness. And that's something when I say that, probably a lot of people will have get their backs up and go, but yeah, but how do you know that? And that's maybe not true. And fair enough. It is a very, very subjective experience. But once you've experienced it, that is that if you've experienced your death. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
and you no, are no longer afraid of death, then, then you can truly live mm. because you're not afraid. You realize that it is only ever now. And I love Timothy Leary, one of my, you know, great, uh, I, I was fortunate enough to meet him, you know, before he died. And he was looked at death as the final great trip. That's what he always referred to. And he prepared for it. And he just like, yes, this is so the biggest adventure, the crowning jewel of the life experience is that moment of death. And mm. I believe it is having experienced in my own experience that there is no such thing as a finish, an end, an absolute abrupt end. Yes, there is an end to the personality, there is an end to the ego, but that which animates all of those things remains and cannot, cannot be you know, created nor destroyed. And it cannot be touched by any trauma or any kind of like you know, bad experience. Yes, the, many of the other bodies can, the physical, the mental, the emotional, the spiritual, but that part of you that is pure consciousness is always the watcher, always the witness, always present, always here. No matter what state, what bardo, which particular space-time reality we have to occupy at any point. So that's my understanding of it. So I do believe that personal self-actualization, personal experience of states other than the 3D blinkered reality we were conditioned into as children, states which affirm our multidimensional nature as human beings, mm. these are the experiences that will indelibly change uh, the way we view the world. And if enough people on the planet have those experiences, those mystical, we could call them for want of a better word, mystical experiences of the higher chakras beyond just procreation, living, eating and dying, um, those people who have them are, are in the ascendancy. You may not, when you turn on the news, hear about these people or read about these people or know about these people, but believe me, they are there because in my travels around the world, which has been happening for the last 15 or 16 years, that's all I see is people waking up to that reality. And, and the more that people wake up to that reality, um, the closer we get to what is known as critical mass. And when critical mass is reached within a a system like, uh, uh, say, the collective, collective unconscious of human beings, or it's been demonstrated in monkeys in the 100th monkey principle, which I'm sure you're familiar with, um, when you get to that critical mass, suddenly everything changes. Like suddenly people who are not tuned into that reality start to get it, just on the natch, bang, 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 bang. Of course, it's obvious. Why didn't I see it before? You know, and the kind of reality that we're being birthed into is totally understandable to a child. It's simple, it's elegant, it's beautiful, it's not complicated or sophisticated or cunning or that you need to know shitloads of knowledge in order to understand it. No, mm. on the contrary, these are principles aligned with universal law in, in uh, absolute resonance with what I call the unified field. And when you are in the unified field and you have an awareness of being in the unified field, you realize that the micro and the macro are one, as above, so below, as within, so without. So I understand from that point of consciousness that I am it. I am everything. I am the entire cosmos. And yet I am just a part of many, many, many cosmoses, all the other beings. Things that exist are also the center point of that awareness and that together they form this holographic unified field of, of consciousness. So it's not a linear or sequential kind of understanding as is, it's not a left brain understanding. 
Mm. It's much more a holistic, it happens in the right hemisphere of the brain, this kind of an experience, what I call a mystical experience. And these mystical experiences, which have been viewed by science in the past as being pretty useless, what can you do with that? How can you apply that? What's the practical application? Are actually completely, uh, uh, you know, essential catalysts for this birthing into a new paradigm, into a new consciousness. What I mean by the new paradigm? It's just a new way of perception, a new way of seeing ourselves and a new way of seeing ourselves in relation to the other. That's what I mean. And seeing the unified connection of that. So that when you're aware of the unified field of all things that are connected, then how can you possibly do harm to somebody else knowing very well that you're doing harm to yourself? Whereas, you know, in 3D space-time, you think you can get away with that. Oh, well, I'll look, just look after number one. doesn't matter what the person below me is doing. I'll just stand on their head to get another rung higher. Do you know what I mean? Like, and it's just not that same awareness because you think it's all about survival. Mm. Whereas the unified field and awakening to the unified field, which really means awakening to one's own true potential, awakening to one's own self-actualization, this is what will do. What will create the the um, the shift in the, in consciousness? It's not tinkering with the nuts and bolts of the system, nor is it convincing other peoples uh, to believe what you believe. Not at all. These are all political activities which we've been used to doing as human beings in the past. What I'm suggesting is something that is utterly uh, discontinuous from the past. So that self-actualization or self-realization is a very personal. Very subjective thing, but it's the most powerful way you can connect to the collective. So that, you know, your own experience, they say that when a, when a human being wakens up, the whole universe wakes up. And there's a truth in that, because it is, we are not separate, we are one with all of it. And the universe delights in the awakening of, of a being to its true nature. So that's the way I see it's going to happen, and I believe it is a very much an internal excuse me, um, process. And, you know, many of us are already on that path, have been for a long time. And many, many people, let's face it, the majority of the planet are still fast asleep. And one wonders sometimes, well, how could possibly those people all wake up so quickly as they need to do? And sometimes, you know, people can wake up either willingly, you know, they just wake up, okay, it's time to wake up, get up. Other times people go, no, no, I don't want to wake up. So you need a bit of a Zen stick. There's an ask <laughs> bang, hit you over the head. And go, oh, shit, and you wake up. And, you know, I think the world is in, uh, is in need or is already happening that there are certain Zen sticks on the way to awaken people, even through adversity. So adversity is not necessarily a bad thing. You know, even this lockdown, which, you know, has stopped the the kind of normal human rights of most human beings, particularly in the place where you live, Melbourne, um, it can also inadvertently wake people up mm. because people need to then look at themselves, look at what they believe to be real, look at the, what they've been doing, how they've been operating in life, and has it really been satisfying? Has it really served their true nature? So these questions are arising in people, and I think it's a very, very healthy thing. So this is what I mean about a bit of a Zen stick. Sometimes restriction has very good uh, results. You know, and we're looking at Mars in the sky at the moment, squaring Saturn and Pluto, the two biggies. Mm. You know, like Saturn being the king of restriction and teaching hard yards and Pluto being all about power, sex, death and resurrection and uh, and often really murky and dark and explosive. So, you know, we're going through a very, that 
dark corridor, as I was saying earlier, in the rite of passage. We've just entered into it, and uh, but it's a very, very necessary step. So I don't condemn that, and I don't see it as a bad thing. But one needs to embrace it with the full awareness and the full knowledge of the larger paradigm, of the larger cycle that's playing out right now. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that, Dubs. And just even in my own work, I've come to... It feels uh, it feels true in my bones what you're sharing. Like I've been a coach for three years now, and at the moment, as and I've this has never been the case. But now there's tw- I've got 22 coaching clients. It's been going through the roof, primarily around these questions like what is my purpose? Now that I've got time to myself, let me recalibrate. Let me refocus. Stuff wasn't serving me anyway. Some of the bigger conversations I've been um, hearing are also people were like, well, you hated going to work. And as a collective, we called this in in many ways. You, know, you wanted a pause and a reset. You wanted weekend every day. You've got it. What are you doing with it now? <laughs> you know, And that was right on. That was a really interesting um, drop in for me as well. So, and one of the things I heard you saying there is, uh, yeah, you know, even that what we perceive as challenges um, are in service to the macro in many ways. And, one of the quotes that I, I come back to is like, even the devil does not know who it serves, you know? Uh, I use this all the time. It's so true. You know, the devil knows not for whom he works because actually ultimately they're all on the same team, God and the devil, you know, because they can only exist in a duality. They can only be a God if there's a devil in a 3D space-time understanding. But from a unified field looking at, God is the devil. Devil is the God. And I, one of the greatest lessons I ever learned in my life, in the work that I've done, is when I've seen all my, you know, I had visions of past lives and some of them were very dark and, and, and uh, abuse of power and things like that. And others were very, very light and beautiful and in, you know, sanghas and communities of great mm-hmm. spirit. And, uh, but I realized when I was experiencing them all that when you can look fully into the face of the devil and fully into the face of God and recognize them both as your own true face, then you are healed. Then you become whole. You go beyond this or that or God and the devil or duality. You embrace the totality. And this is why I love the Hindu situation where they don't really have a devil. They've seen, say, in the matriarch, in the goddess realms, you'll have Parvati, the really beautiful wife, loving, you know, a bounteous, abundant, you know, lover, wife, archetype. And you'll have Kali, who eats men for breakfast and eats skulls (laughs) and slays the heads of egos. And and there's the dark mother, and she'll destroy and, and vomit you out, you know. And they embrace both as the one. All of these different archetypes of faces of the mother and all the ones in between Pavarti and Kali, of which there are many, um, are part of the same thing. They're just different aspects or different uh, filters of that one feminine, divine feminine aspect. And the same could be said about the divine masculine. And then eventually, of course, the masculine and the feminine come to unite, like yin and yang, the totality in the whole. So this is the way I see it. And... Um, it's not an abstract thing, I, I, and it's not even a philosophical thing. It's, it's something that is a, a point of view, a perspective, a perception. And when you um, uh, expand your perception to embrace a larger view than, than you've been operating on up until now, um, whenever you change your perception, the world outside will cannot help but change and present itself to you according to your new mm. perception. So it's not about changing the world out there. It's about changing the perception here. And then suddenly the world looks different. 
because of the way we've changed, not because we're changing. And that's what, you know, when I was a young man at university, I was a very activist kind of a person and wanted to change the Vietnam War and wanted to change apartheid and all of these things. And I got something like, I don't know, four or five political convictions of that time for, you know, trying to live out my beliefs. But the truth is that, um, sorry, there's a lawnmower coming through here, is that... Uh, it has very limited value, tinkering with the nuts and bolts of the system to try and change the system. Mm. You know, it's called political activity. It does have some incremental value, but the, when you work, tweak the software within our own being, mm. upon directly upon consciousness, that has a very, very powerful impact. And it's the most impactful way we can, we can work with uh, changing ourselves and changing the environment within which we live. It's literally to look at ourselves, to look at our own backyard and clean that up and to claim the shadow as being a rightful place instead of burying it under the ground and therefore it's running you from the unconscious activity of your mind you embrace the shadow and it's a very very important aspect now that i've mentioned that mm. embracing the shadow it's literally like saying your parvati needs to embrace kali mm. you know um we need to do that because for too long we've We've shoved our shadow down underneath because it hasn't been socially acceptable or religiously acceptable or conceptually acceptable. And, um, and so th what happens when you bury the shadow is that it gets projected outwards onto the world. People are always pointing the finger and blaming others for their own unlived shadow. And, you know, when you think about evil, it is the word live backwards. And so anything that is evil is literally just unlived. It's unconscious. And we just need to make the shadow conscious. And then when the shadow is made conscious and embraced, like the prodigal son brought home into the fold where it's always belonged, then the shadow can relax and it just becomes the dark, like the duck and the day, you know, like one complements the other and one becomes whole and, and, and one's life becomes much richer as a result because the shadow is no longer full of emotional charge trying to uh, demand attention by causing all kinds of like, you know, uh, you know, uh, toxic uh, experiences in your life, which is what the shadow's great at it while it's unconscious and while it's being pushed under the carpet. But once mm. it's embraced, it just becomes whole. It becomes compassion. That's what it becomes, compassion. Mm. You can start accepting everybody where they are as being basically human, as being basically good and as being basically doing the best that they can. And you can assist in people for them to make friends with their own shadows mm. and to integrate that aspect of themselves because this is a very, very... Uh, integral and very crucial aspect of our of our self-transformation, of our self-actualization. And this is the period that we're right on right now, at this moment, here now, is what's happening. We're starting to have to look at our shadow. And that's what's coming up under Mars Square, Pluto and Saturn. And if you look at America, if you look at, you know, what's happening in the Middle East, if you look at what's happening in Africa and Europe, you see it everywhere. It's actually the time for that. So it's not a good or a bad thing. It's just a necessary stage that we're moving through at this point. Thank you so much for sharing that, Darps. And <laughs> at the risk of, um, yeah, going to places, I don't even know why I'm saying that, but at the risk of going places which may not make some sense, but sometimes I end up pinching myself to even just think that reality is really happening the way that um, it is or it isn't, and especially in this conversation, because what you're just touching on there is acceptance. 
And it's been a huge piece for me that's just come cascading in at the moment. And sometimes I do question whether I have my own thoughts or whether I'm just an antenna and we're just taken in the collective at times. And what I'm hearing for myself being true at the moment is previously, and it's interesting that you're referring to the shadow because maybe call it the a function of being an adolescent man or, or something or the other, I don't need to find an excuse. But in that space, I kind of felt like my spirituality was focused on driving towards something that was holy, that was sanctified. It was a bit more phallic in its nature. It was like, you know what? And you can sort of just neglect kind of all these things that potentially don't serve you on the path to righteousness. And recently, for one reason or another, things have started to evolve. And this conversation around acceptance has really come home um, to, hey, like, you know, if what if your shame and your guilt are just there for you to transmute through and into, into another, like, whole spiritual experience and I as I'm starting to drop into this awareness I'm realizing that both are spiritual practices and both are spiritual templates and there's probably infinite spiritual templates but for me I'm transitioning from one that feels a bit more masculine kind of shunning and just driving towards something as to hey let me sit here and sort of you know push into and I kind of when you refer to the Hindu avatars I love just you sharing that as well. It's like a message that's really deep. People say Hindus have many gods. Actually, no, it's it's one unified energy, but many different access points. And I kind of see that, you know, when you touch the touch the Devi, it's like whether she's the Devi of destruction, you touching her is your opportunity to see light on the other side of that. And actually we are a holy spiritual experience having that um, moment with our spirituality in those interactions with some of the things that we would like to repress. And I think it's, yeah, it's just fascinating for me that that's what's really present for me right now in the shift that I'm going through. And you're referring to it as the cultural shift as well that we're kind of going through. Incredible. Thanks for that sharing. It's, it's very, very pertinent and right on the pulse of what's happening. And I agree with you. Acceptance is the key. For me, that's been my spiritual dharma for most of my life, is simply learning how to accept. Because Osho, my teacher, gave me uh, the name Darpan, and mm. Darpan means mirror. Yeah. And for a long time, I thought, I really was tripping off on that thing. Wow, what, what, what's that? And what does that mean? And, and, you know, there are so many layers to the mirror, but one of the, you know, most obvious ones is that, uh, is that a mirror never judges. A mirror reflects... It doesn't say, oh, you're beautiful, oh, you're ugly, no, I don't like you, yeah, like that. It never does that. But it purely and simply and faithfully just reflects what is. And I love that. And I think that a mirror is a beautiful uh, symbol for total acceptance, hmm. uh, no judgment. And I think that that's at the very core of what's happening here. Um, you know, like uh, accepting the shadow, accepting is all about that. It's, it's, about, it's not about becoming perfect as human beings. We'll always have you know, little bits and pieces that are sort of dysfunctional. I, I, even my teachers, I've seen them with their little bits and pieces. But what I can say about them and what I learned from them is that they are whole. They are whole beings. They are living their totality. And they are living their truth and expressing it moment by moment without being... Um, without being... Uh, adversely affected by uh, conditions, conditions to that, which is the conditions of living that we are, and to hold that space and hold that sense of compassion. So then you start to give your gift as a person uh, it, freely without having to get to, uh, to, without having to judge what you're doing or, or try and be perfect or try and be something or live up to something that you think you're not or whatever. 
It's just being who you are and accepting who you are so deeply that it becomes um, it becomes divine because because there's no judgment anymore. And and of course, what at the heart of acceptance we find love, self-love. And this is the affliction that's, that's really afflicted most of humanity because of our conditioning. Look, I was brought up a Catholic. You mentioned shame and guilt. Shame and guilt are the very cornerstone of the Catholic religion. That's how they control you. You know, sorry for the Catholics out there, but I was brought up by nuns for seven years and I had to run away from home for a week <laughs> to convince my parents I wasn't going to a, to a Catholic school uh, in Adelaide away from my family because I want a scholarship to go there with brothers. You know what I mean? I didn't just couldn't get it after seven years because I could already then, as a as a child, realize that or understand that that there was something sick about that, about mm-hmm. making yourself feel unworthy, feeling like a sinner. The fact that you're born, you're immediately a sinner because of Adam and Eve did something, and so you're now a sinner because of mm. that. So it was inbuilt to the system, and so of course the uh, ontological aspects of that are that mm-hmm. you know people are controlled by promoting fear, by promoting shame, by promoting guilt. And especially if you, if you can split a person from their highest aspirations to, um, to just sharing, uh, to, to just ex- experiencing also their, where they feel dysfunctional, mm. that if you can create that split, then you can control somebody, then you can control yeah. a person. Excuse me, would you like me to ask this person to move? Is that too much? Yeah, I can just wait Is a that, sec. The, yeah, for sure. Huh? If you want me to just wait, I can wait. Just a second. It's one zero one fifteen. Thanks for that. That was a little distracting, so good to just deal with that. And you might even be able to cut this anyway. So. Yeah, totally. That's all sorted. Um, um, so you're t- yeah. telling us about self-love dubs and the piece in there is, and I, and I, I really value um, just what you're sharing there. And there is, you know, doing this work, it can be a slippery slope in terms of trying to find where self-love and self-kindness is coming in and also where kind of hedonism is coming in. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like, you know, when we sort of say self-love, there are those that are against self-love because they're like, you know what, you're just being hedonistic. And for those that understand that, you know, the self needs some nourishment and needs some looking after because potentially that's not going to come from something external, they're massive advocates for self-love. And I kind of find this rift between the two. Um, Is that, again, just the light and the shadow aspect of the two around self-love? Well, what we've got to deal with in that particular instance, what you just commented upon is the paucity of the English language. In other words, the uh, it's a semantic thing where this four-letter word love is used to apply what you feel for your dog, for your parents, for your sister, for your brother, for the trees, for the moon. You know, like you love what you food. And it's just this one word, <laughs> love. Now, you know, it's applied to so many different things and it means so many. So when we're talking about 
you know, hedonism as being an aspect of love or love that is a universal love, they're completely different things, but we still have the same word, love, mm. you know, to describe them. That's where we the inherent problem really lies. So let's define that. I mean, like, you know, say, for example, in, in the Eskimos have 60 different words for snow mm-hmm. because all different kinds of snow. There's the fine sleet snow, there's the hard snow, there's a, you know, they distinguish between all of these different parts and in distinguishing them, they make them accessible to human mm. understanding. See, with the one word love to describe the, the whole spectrum of, of what people use the term for, mm. it becomes highly subjective and it becomes an immense uh, potential for misunderstanding and for, uh, you know, uh, vagueness uh, because mm. the same word is applied. So there's people can start arguing about things, each one having a different picture of what the word love means. And there's all this unnecessary misunderstanding and, and uh, yeah, taking things taken out of context. So having said that, uh, you know, like let's look at what I would like to define a, a few different forms of love. There's the love you feel for your beloved, which is a deep heart opening, gorgeous sharing with the other. It's a, it involves two people. Hmm. There's also the love for existence, the universal love, which is can be felt by anybody in deep meditation or in, a, in, a, in any exalted state. There's the love that you feel for your animals or for your, you know, for the plants that you that you plant in your garden. And so there's all these different loves. But mm. when you talk about hedonism, it's more like that's that's what I, I wouldn't call that love. It's kind of an infatuation with oneself. It's it's a sensualism more than love. It's getting uh, it's getting enamored by the senses and therefore, you know, promoting the senses as a way of being happy. Well, that's that's beautiful, but it's not love, not what I call love. Love is the context within which all exists. Love is not personal. Love is not necessarily about the other. Love is what keeps the whole music of the spheres in, in harmony, dancing, all the planets spinning around each other, all the galaxies spinning around each other. This is what I call love. It's the animating force that is immanent throughout the entire universe. It's, it's like they say, the Taoists say, when a butterfly bats its wings, it's felt on the other side of the universe because all things are connected and it is connected via love. And the kind of love that I'm talking about does not have an opposite. The kind of love that we talk about, like the infatuation you might feel for another human being, also has its opposite. You know, from love comes hate. You know, from happiness comes sadness. Everything is polar has a polarity within our 3D space-time reality and you can't have one without the other. That's what the yin and yang symbol means. Even though you've got the dark side of the yin and yang, the yin, it's always got that little spot of yang in there and vice versa because things are always shifting in this domain. Nothing is static. Nothing actually is. The only thing that is static is the element of change. That's the only thing you could say that you could depend upon as being a principle that is unchanging is change itself. (laughs) <laughs> but the kind of love that I'm talking about does not have an opposite. It mm. is in the unified field. It is what, what nests and animates all things. Mm. So we first have to define the terms. But having defined that just very briefly and, and in a little way, because I could go on for a long time, um, within that context, I would like to say that in our own self-actualization, it is very, very important to love oneself. And by that I mean to feel worthy because the, you know, 90% of the psychological afflictions uh, suffered by humanity are due to lack of self-worth. Mm. 
In other words, we're taught, as I said, when you're born as a Catholic, you're immediately a sinner because of what Adam, Adam you know, Adam, they both took the apple. So therefore, you're a sinner. So you're, you're fucked right before you, before you start, you know what I mean? So that's how they do it. But the thing is that we've got to reclaim that sense of inner worth, that sense of connectivity to all things, to realize that we are divine creators that we are, are magicians in this world, that we are here to create beauty and abundance and sharing of, of, of higher and higher um, frequencies of, of love and good feelings. And once you realize that, your life, in fact, starts to reflect that. But until that time, of course, we have to suffer the, the um, indignities of feeling less than worthy. You know, uh, of feeling like, oh, I'm not good enough, and oh, if I did that, no, I'd fuck it up, you know, something else, or just judging oneself entirely all the way down the line. Like, as let's face it, 99% of people to one degree or another do. So the very first lesson that I learned along the spiritual path was love yourself. And it sounds selfish. And I can understand where the notion of hedonism would would you know extrapolate from there. But it's not selfish when you understand the truth. Look, let me give you an example. When you're in an aircraft and they say, oh, listen, if we have an accident, there's, a, there's an air thing down below, make sure you put your own mask on before your child. If you try and do the good thing, you know, be noble, put it on the child, you might die in the process, and what good are you going to be to your child then? Mm-hmm. In other words, take care of yourself first, and when you're good, then you overflow to others and give from that place. Because anything else, if you're giving love without giving to others, without giving love to yourself, then it's conditional. It's a contract. It's like saying, if I give you this love, will you give me some back, please? You know, please, pretty please. We become <laughs> beggars, you know, and we become do-gooders, which is also an erroneous thing. It's actually an, an egoic thing. It's a reverse ego. It looks like the do-gooder is who's saving the earth or saving the children or saving this or saving that is doing good. But actually, my question would be, how about saving yourself first? Mm. Because that's what's important to, the, to really giving to this planet what it needs. If you can awaken yourself, the whole world wakens up. It, you know, trying to wake up other people without waking up yourself is a misnomer. It's, it's a misunderstanding. It doesn't work. You know, all you get, with, with, that's called politics. Um, but if, we, if one can love oneself, and the way I've done it when I was working with um, a guy called Varesh, called Varesh at the Humaniversity in Holland back in the, in the 90s, it was a place of radical transformation where he was studying various modalities like primal, tantra, encounter, meditation. We were just the hotbed of all kinds of, it was a live-in therapeutic community of about 300 people cool. where I lived for some time. And some of his work was really tough. He'd strip you down, you know, like mm. the ego. I mean, not, he'd strip the ego down and then taught you how to just give yourself the love that we are begging for from others. Normally we're a beggar, going, please, please give me love and tell me I'm good and then I'll give it back to you and we'll both be good, right? Mm. It's like having, I'll fill up your cup and then if you fill fill up my cup, we'll be whole. All I'm saying is fill up your own cup first. Mm. Fill it up. So you don't need to beg for that from someone else. You don't need to, to negotiate with anyone else about whether you're worthy or not or whether you deserve love or whether you feel worthy to be on this planet. Mm. You simply fill your own cup and then what's left after that is simply to overflow. Because you keep putting it in there and it just overflows and it naturally overflows. And it overflows without demanding from the other that they give anything in return. The overflowing is the joy. It's the joy of giving that then gives you the, the buzz for wanting to give. It's not like an exchange or a contract. Like, I'll give you love, will you give me some back, please? 
And if you look at 95 or 99% of relationships, that's what's happening. Mm. It's only when you find people who have truly learned to love themselves and then they're overflowing to their beloved that then total freedom has happened between those two beloveds as well. There's not a, an, a, a kind of a, a codependent uh, contract going on. Mm. It's simply like, I just love being with you and I just want to be with you for as long as this now can last. And you might find 30 years down the track, wow, we're still here in this now, amazing. Or you might find, in all truth, we've done our thing together. Now we walk this way and I walk this way. and But with total love and no kind of acrimony. No, because you've already given yourself that worth. You don't need somebody else to tell you that you're good. So my main mantra that I worked with for years was, I love myself no matter what. Mm. I love myself no matter what. Mm. Okay, I might fuck up. Okay, I fucked up. I'm so sorry. But I love myself mm. no matter what. Because so often when we think we've done something amiss or remiss, we start, you know, flagellating ourselves. You did it wrong. You should have done this better. And you start berating yourself and making yourself feel unworthy again mm -hmm. because that's what we've been taught to do. And that's what the church does. And that's what the politicians do. And while you're feeling unworthy, guess what? You're fully exploitable. You're fully mm -hmm. able to be manipulated. You're fully able to be influenced to this belief or, or another. Whereas when you give yourself love, what happens is you become your own authority. An inner knowing arises with that awareness. It's just a healthy overflowing. It's like a spring bubbles up. It's not like you're forcing it. It just happens. And then you realize the beauty of the connectivity to all things that when somebody asks you something, you don't need to go, oh, is that right? Is that wrong? Can you please give me the rule book? Tell me how I should do this, which is how we've been taught to behave. You simply look inside and you go, ah, this is it. Or you go, that information is not available right now. Must mean it's not not needed. Mm. It's as simple as that. In other words, trust oneself. Mm. That is a natural outpouring of loving oneself. Is trust. Trust. You cannot contrive it. You cannot manufacture it. You cannot do it. It simply is an outpouring of of self love. If you love yourself, you will trust what yourself. And if you can trust yourself, by extension, you can then have the possibility of trusting another. But how can you possibly trust another if you don't trust yourself in the first place? If you don't love yourself in the first place, how can you truly give love? Mm. It just becomes a, con a negotiation, a contract to try and acquire it or to try and procure it. When it's, it's not. Uh, love is, uh, is uh, uh, it's, it's a friend. It's a gift. It's, it's, it arrives. You, you open the door and, and make the invitation, but you can't force love mm. because if you force it, it's not love anymore. <laughs> you know, so you have to make the invitation, prepare the room and hope that the guest arrives. Love is a guest. Mm. It arrives. It comes. You can't force it. You can't create it. You can't make it happen. It happens. And it happens out of self-love, out of feeling okay with oneself and feeling trust, which is a result of feeling okay with oneself. Mm. This is the way I see it. Thank you so much for sharing that, Dubs. And even in what you're sharing, then like uh, I find with the self-love piece, we were talking about having, I call it meta-awareness, but sometimes it's it's inappropriate to call it that because meta, M-E-double-T-A, sometimes is loving kindness awareness. Oh, that's right. When yes. I talk about meta, I talk M-E-T-A, like just getting bigger. Yeah. Um, but that, yeah, that meta-awareness, you know, sometimes when we make mistakes, even if we're loving ourselves, down three months down the track, 
a couple of years down the track, you realize that was the perfect mistake actually to make to get me to here. So sometimes you have those moments, which is like, wow. And I spent that, all that time berating myself. Um, and I, this was going to be one of the points which I wasn't going to leave you today without us touching on. And I feel like you've already excavated it out. So thank you so much. Was this, Darps, when I'm speaking to you, I, you know, the self-love piece and you talking about how that dug into truth um, and self-truth. And for me, again, just reflecting on just how true it is for me that when, yeah, like that piece of self-love, you can feel when someone's not necessarily loving themselves and they're like, I love you. You can feel sometimes there's like a wispiness to it. Like the, when someone's actually done some of the, I love myself and you can see that, wow, they're really like, they really love themselves and then they love you too. It's like, whoa, from the overfloweth cup, like, wow, what a blessing to receive. Um, but the conviction is something I really wanted to talk to you about today as well, because one of the things that inspires me um, most about your DARPs and, you know, potentially, <laughs> wow, there's so many things, but uh, <laughs> the conversation around, again, the mirror DARPs is this conviction that I see um, for yes, I believe that the time is now. I think there are so many of us that would like to believe that yes, the time is now, but the conviction escapes us um, for fear of being wrong, for fear of potentially, oh, if it's not the right time and I said it was, and then it escaped me and it, and it slipped through me. And every time I encounter your presence, Darps, it's empowered, it's loving, um, and it's, it's, it's like, yep, now is the time. And the conviction that you hold um, is yeah, I think you've kind of shared that it is from that place of self-love. Is that the the cornerstone of, of where that conviction comes from? Certainly, everything comes from self-love in terms of certainty. And I think certainty is a really, really prominent spiritual uh, kind of uh, aspect that is, is uh, like when I was with Osho, he was the most certain person I ever met. You know, like just totally with what he was saying, totally con congruency between mind, body, spirit. Mm. Uh, there was no doubt. There was no mm -hmm. fear. There was no projection into the future or past, which was what created so much power behind the words that he was saying. Now, about the, you know, the now, as you were saying, as an example, and that, that might bring stuff up in people. Well, the reason why that bring, brings stuff up or doubt or anything is because speaking about something like that, to really understand the now or what, what is meant by that is, is, is the result of an experience, not an intellectual understanding. That's mm. where the certainty comes from. Once we intellectually accept, okay, yeah, it's just the now, the future never happens, tomorrow never comes, yesterday is gone, never to be repeated again, so therefore, yes, it is only now. So one could logically deduce we are in the now. But that won't stop you from the doubts and the mind coming in because it's just an intellectual understanding. Mm. But if you experience through meditation or through sacred plants or through some other divine intervention that you transcend the mind, you jump out of the mind, what you immediately experience is the now in its mag total magnificence, unmitigated magnificence. But, you know... Just thinking about that, you can't really apprehend that. It's like the mind trying to apprehend infinity. Look, the mind is simply not hardwired to understand infinity. It can try, but because we begin, we're born and we die, and the mind is part of which is born and which dies, the mind cannot grasp infinity other than in an intellectual thought. Yeah. But what happens when you experience it on an experiential level 
through one agency or another, through just divine grace. No intellectual argument is needed. Mm. The under experience is speaks a million words. The experience is it. And when you are immersed in that experience again and again and again, it starts to become part of your nature. It mm. start to, you start to trust it. You start to accept it as being the deepest part of your being, beyond your thoughts, beyond your concepts, beyond your reasoning. And this is where I, where I, you know, people like when I talk about love as being having no opposite, uh, it's to me love is another way of saying love is unreasonable happiness, <laughs> happy for no reason at all. Because often you go, happy? Why, why am I feeling? And you're looking for an inter- That's the happy that also has a sad to it. But the one that is un- unreasonable happiness mm. is a result of an awareness. It's a result of an experience, not of a belief, not of a concept, not of an idea. Ideas and concepts can be extrapolated from that experience in a way to try and communicate it. But if it just remains on that level, it will be incomplete and it will be uncertain and it will be uh, subject to question. It will be subject to doubt. And so I can well understand why people have uh, it's a challenge for some people to to grasp this idea of either infinity or eternity or now. Now is eternal. There's nothing else exists outside of that, just now. It is the eternal now. And I believe that the consciousness shift that we're moving towards is an awareness of that now being eternal without, but still retaining that 3D measurement thing of, yeah, I'll see you at three o'clock tomorrow. But you know it's just an artifice. It's just a device to arrange for a, a now that is not yet this moment, uh, and therefore one could say it's the future, but you know that the future is just a device. It's not real. It's just something you're using as a way of communicating. It's like language. Is language real? It's just a device. It's a way of communication. And so is time. Same thing. And so like jumping into the eternal now is jumping into eternity, is jumping beyond life or death, and experiencing yourself so totally that it is absolutely certain. It is Mm. certain, without any doubt, because full trust is there. There's a knowingness which naturally gives birth to trust because you know it to be true. You don't believe it to be true. You know it to be true on your own authority, and that's a very important point. You're not getting that truth from somebody else telling you, which Mm. then becomes a belief or an idea, from your own inner arising. When you have an experience of the totality of now, and this is why people meditate, is to, is to advance towards a full experience of the now. And the now is by its very nature outside of the mind. The mind is always busy with projecting into the future or looking back into the past. Oh, we're going to build a house. How do we do that? Oh, last year, remember that last house we built? We did it this way, this way. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, and then the mind sequentially does things from checking back in on the past and imagining how it would like to be in the future. So that's the mind's great ability and gift but it is and it is a gift as long as you realize that it's not you that it's not Mm. the truth it's just a device and the mind is there to be used like any other body like the physical body like the emotional body we have the intellectual body and they are all very useful but if we start neurotically identifying with that mind as who we are that's where the mistake happens it's not that the ego or the mind or the personality is a bad thing not at all it's our identification with them as that's who we are. That is it. Because even someone great like Rene Descartes, he once said, I think, therefore I am. 
It was a misunderstanding because he was a product of an intellectual uh, Western philosopher. I would turn that around and say, I am, therefore I think. Mm. It's a very profound and very simple shift, but I think it's a very good way of looking at how we in the West have, have unfolded or extrapolated our intellect as being the most powerful tool we have, when it is a powerful tool, but it's not the most powerful tool we have. And it's not the only center of intelligence. The heart has its own intelligence. The belly has its own intelligence. That's why in the West we say, where's the center of consciousness? They'll all point to the head. In the East, they might point to the heart, you know. In uh, the China and Japan, they'll point to the belly. Heart, this is where the point of consciousness is. Mm. So it's all a different orientation of the same totality. And when we take it as a totality, we are on the way to holding or healing, becoming whole. And if we can uh, suspend the mind and jump, because all meditation is, and let me define meditation for a moment. Many people think meditation is sitting in a certain posture, doing some breathing exercises, maybe doing a mantra. No, this is not meditation. This is a concentration of the mind and has very positive benefits, certainly. But meditation is not subject to a certain posture, nor is it subject to a certain way of breathing or certain mantras. It is simply uh, sinking deeply into the now. And, what, and at first that's very hard to do because of the monkey mind. It's not called the monkey mind for nothing. It will jump in and try and control what you're doing and thinking. And, and so meditators you know, call it the monkey mind. But, but in fact, if you sit there and sit there and just empty yourself and keep emptying yourself, you will come to a point where you experience that now, and that now is not happening in your intellect. It's not happening in your mind in the way that we define mind. It is an experience that is beyond that. And in that moment, one does and can apprehend infinity, not via the mind, but through an experiential knowing, a knowingness. And that is really the whole point of meditation, is to bring you to that knowingness which is beyond the mind. That's how I would divine define meditation so you know meditation is a very very good practice and but then again anything can do it you know like i was mentioning earlier danger sports i've got a friend grant page who i came over to visit the other day he's 81 now and he, he <laughs> miraculously survived his life he was one of the greatest stuntmen alive on the planet today he did all of the stunts on mad max with a broken leg and two broken ribs by the way you know motorbikes going through because he loves danger why does he like danger? Not because he wants to kill himself, because when he's doing a stunt, he is totally in the now. Mm. There is no time to think about a split second in the future or the past, or you're going to blow it. Mm. And your life's on the line, so don't blow it. So mm. he throws you in the here and now. So these beings are actually very spiritual beings. Mm. It's the same with people with heroin. Heroin addicts, they'll do shoot the heroin because for a moment they'll feel that orgasmic bliss of the now being totally enveloped in this moment without the mind being mitigated by the mind. But of course, the danger there, and with doing stunts, of course, is that you can kill yourself. Mm -hmm. And it's really a very spiritual being seeking union with a very inferior... Uh, um, Modality? Like tool, like mm -hmm. heroin or danger. They're inferior tools because they're actually dangerous. Whereas meditation is not, and it's a really safe way to enter into the now and a far more, you know, uh, holistic uh, way that has integrity around it. But I can understand why people use hard drugs. I can understand why people do dangerous things because it does throw you into the now, and that is the buzz. The buzz is being totally in the now.
you know, I've done it myself when I've been climbing, you know, with Grant, you know, years ago. When you're on this cliff face, there's no thought. And you can't think beyond what your move is and the next move. And that's a buzz. You get such a buzz from that. It's, you know, it, the, the act, very act itself is, is, its, is its own payoff. And why? Because you're entering into the now. And we are obscured by the now by all those uh, shields and filters, which we call thoughts, ideas, concepts, beliefs, opinions. All of those things shield us from experiencing the now every moment. And the more you can disengage from all those ideas and concepts and beliefs, i.e. the, the cultured mind, um, the more you can actually come to the truth of this moment and who we are at essence, which is divine, eternal, immortal beings. That's mm. who we are. <laughs> Darbs, I love it. So when we come connected to our own true selves, we have access to our own potential truth from that perspective then. And what has rang true for me in many ways, and thanks in massive large part to the work that's been supported by yourself, is this awareness that my inner truth um, once I get closer through the practice of meditation, um, I get closer to, okay, my inner truth is X, Y, and Z. And for me, it's this sense of purpose that I come really intimately aware of. And time and time again, and perhaps, you know, this is not everybody's truth, but it comes back to a sense of service for me. Um, is that, and I, I just reflect upon, you know, your own being and your own truth and just the service that I see that, you know, you live by as well, which inspires me every day. Um, is there a sense of, yeah, that inner truth? Like I, I hear us dropping into the now, dropping into our own truth, accessing potentially our own true purpose. And is the purpose uh, more often than not one of service? Beautiful that you brought this up. It's actually the crowning jewel of self-actualization is service. Once you've accepted yourself so deeply that there is no more doubt, once you've given that love to yourself that you spent half your life look, running around trying to get from other people mm. or other events or situations. Once you give yourself those things and once you realise that you are the centre, you are the centre of everything and that whatever you can imagine, you can manifest, mm. then you step into your divine role as a... a a divine magician, a, a manifester of whatever it is that you want to manifest in this world. And of course, if you've, if you've gone through the, what I call the self-actualization process, then, um, then there are no personal desires anymore. You don't really want to do things just to, like you're saying for hedonism, just to feel good. That's no longer a good enough reason. It's, and it's limited because you know that it's like an ice cream. An ice cream can feel really good. Oh, yum, this is so good. The second ice cream still stays good the third ice cream oh, not so good fourth ice cream oh shit i can't fifth ice cream this is making me feel sick <laughs> you know what i mean totally it's the law of diminishing returns that's what they call it in economics and hedonism is subject to the law of diminishing returns so therefore any hedonistic activity that is feel good on a sensorial level has a limited life mm. but when you self-actualize and you come to a point of self-acceptance and self-love that you no longer require to uh to stimulate your senses just to feel 
uh, you know, to, to escape the lack of, of, of wholeness or integrity that you're living in day by day, which is usually what people do it for, to escape from their, 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 the whole that they, that they feel within themselves. Then, you know, if you do something for pleasure, like to eat an apple or an ice cream or to smoke a cigarette, you do it with total awareness. And you do it not as a habit or as a as a kind of a a kind of an addiction. You do it because you're choosing to do it, and it's and it's and it's just another thing you can do uh, without obsessing about it. So then, I believe that if you self-actualize to that level where you give yourself total permission to be free and to be your own authority and have autonomy in the way that you feel and act and move, and you give that same freedom to other people, you know, do what you will, but harm none, being the law. Um, then. What else is there but service? Once you overflow, it's again an overflowing thing. The cup is overflowing. What to do but to be in service? And service has, has a, is, again, a loaded word. We get back to semantics. People think, oh, if you're the service, you're the servant, and there's a master that you're serving, and, and there's all this you know, wrong thinking around it. Service is actually, in the way that I'm talking about it, the way that you're talking about it, is actually the crowning jewel of the human experience. Once you've given yourself all the needs that you need to fulfill your potential as a divine human being, then what else is there but to support others and to help and to assist others in that way because it's a joyous task. You're not being a servant. It's a joyous task. It's a kind of a selfish thing because by giving and placing yourself in service, you receive so much in mm -hmm. return. Yeah. But you're not doing service in order to receive so much in return because then it wouldn't be service anymore. Then it's, again, the mind, the cunning <laughs> mind trying to get something. Mm -hmm. No, it simply comes out of the joy of the mm -hmm. overflow. And we call it service because what else is there to do but to be in service to our divine brothers and sisters and to this beautiful planet, you know, mm -hmm. out in the far-flung reaches of the Milky Way. Here we are, this here now, now here this. So... Um, it's beautiful. Service is the crowning jewel. And you know what the great, the other great beauty and the great secret about service is? When you're truly in service to another, you get out of your own way. You simply get out of that self-cogitating, self-conscious thing about, am I doing the right thing? Is this right or is that wrong? Or should I be doing this or should I not be doing it? All that blah, blah that goes on in the mind. <laughs> When you're in service, that just shifts to the side because the focus is not upon you anymore. Mm. In other words, it shifts from service to self to service to others. And what this whole planet is going through right now is a transition from a service to self paradigm to a service to others paradigm. And the only way a service to others paradigm can manifest is when you've resolved that in yourself and you realize I am part of the whole. I am the whole. In one. <laughs> and so you become a good golf player, the whole in one. So the thing is that that's how you do it. And it's that easy and it's that simple, but it's a shift. It's not something you learn. You don't have to gather information to try and come to that awareness. It's an experience. And uh, often there's a catalyst for that, maybe a master or a great teacher or a sacred plant or whatever the catalyst is. Um, you know, it doesn't matter matter in the end but as long as that shift is made it's it, it's in, it doesn't matter what catalyst was because once you're there you're there it's like you could say there's no one way to get there like you know we could all agree to meet in an attic somewhere one person might go up the stairs another one might climb up the drain pipe another <laughs> one might parachute in 
And you end up in the office, here we are, we're in this place. How did you get here? Oh, you got in that way. Shit, you're on the back door, right? I came up the front <laughs> stairs. And doesn't matter how you got to get there. But once you are aware on that level, once you perceive yourself in service to the one and all, by that I mean you see yourself connected to the one and all, therefore how can you be anything but in service to the one and all, mm. then it's just a joyous overflowing. There's no strings attached. There's no uh, contract. You don't want looking for anything in return because the very giving of being in service is the joy. Mm. It's like, you know, I had my career and do my thing. I can't do that anymore. Now I do this all the time. I don't get any money out of it. It's just my joy to share and to open up and to connect with people. It's a joy. It is its own reward in itself. And that's what I mean about true service. You get out of your own way and you simply shift from that thing of service to self, which is what we've been conditioned with in this planet so far, shifting to service to the one and all. It's as simple as that and as difficult as that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Dubs. Oh, man. Thank you so much, brother, for sharing. Oh, bless, as bro. always, just so openly and abundantly and the insights. And yeah, just just to tie that little piece in a bow for me your love for life has you know consistently inspired my love for life which has landed me in what i see as being the freedom of service everything that we see around me doing all of this has you know inspired this so thank you so much for your gracious time energy spirit being here with us today i feel like there are so many rabbit holes further that we could have dug down self-awareness self-love self-conviction the truth the expression service but this was just an amazing amazing hour and i just really want to take a moment to thank you today here and now for being here with us in the eternal now also for all the work that you've done to carry not just myself but the community here in melbourne the community here in australia so many of us have, have learned so much thanks to your blessings and and just you willing to do the work on yourself and support others on their journey and as always darps wishing you all the best for the future as well brother thank you so much ah oh, i'm really it's been an absolute pleasure to, to chat with you and to share you know it always whenever in your presence up my energy always lights up i can't help doing it. i'm sure that's true of many many other friends and, and fellow travelers you know you just have this gift of inspiring lightness and and beauty and and enthusiasm and just sheer joy and that's my language i love speaking that language so thank you brother and it's been my pleasure and my uh, privilege to be here with you today and to connect with all your friends who, who listen to you on these podcasts and let's do it again sometime can't wait <laughs> <laughs> all right brother oh have a beautiful day Dubs. yeah you too Bye-bye. Thanks for listening in to another amazing episode of The Inspired Evolution. If you're loving these episodes, make your way across to YouTube, click subscribe. Fresh episodes are launched every Monday with highlights being released throughout the week. Thank you so much. And hey, guys, just so you know, a lot of love, heart, soul, and work goes into these episodes. So if you could, please leave us a five-star review and comment on iTunes. I love reading your positive feedback. It fans the flames of the passion to continue to create and help you live the life that you love. Thank you so much for your wonderful feedback. I can't wait to see you again in the next episode. Big love from Amrit. And remember to stay inspired to evolve. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.